Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Allian. Today we begin a new series called The Devil's Playbook as a metaphorical take off of the way opposing forces will strategize against one another. We believe that our adversary, the devil, has taken action plans, schemes, and strategies in his attack of God's people. It is our goal to be aware of them, along with the instructions that come from our Lord Jesus in our counterattacks to his advances. Thanks for joining us through this series, as we will examine this morning the original sin of the devil that has also plagued all of mankind in the subject of pride. Well, I have been uh, reminded recently of my thankfulness for football season. Anybody else happy that football season is back again? Um, I'm not coaching this year, but I, I see that hand. Goober, that's right. Amen, brother. Uh, we, we, we are excited to go to Micah's game. Uh, his coaches are doing a good job. And uh, one of the things that's difficult for an ex-coach is to sit in the stands and not try to pass judgment over the defensive schemes or the offensive plays. Uh, but they're doing a good job. I, um, I broke out my old um, call sheet uh, the other day. And uh, it's just, it's all the more impressive to me as I see this as an illustration for the way in which someone's going to take the field in opposition to you and they're not going out there without a plan. And what a foolish team would be if they think there's no strategy involved in playing defense or offense. There was one time uh, a few years back when I was coaching uh, that we had this one player who wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing on defense. The, the scheme was called in by the coach, but he didn't want to do it. And part of the reason is because he knew one of the kids on the opposing team and he really wanted to pop them, but that meant he had to be out of place. Well, the coach, after the play, uh, a couple of times went through, was furious with this player, pulled him off of the field, happened to be the coach's son as well, so you can imagine. Um, and the coach is just kind of pacing back and forth. He said, I can't talk to him. Coach Ryan, would you go try to talk to him? So I went over there. Kind of assessed the situation, and you could see you could see how mad this player was. Like he's just so mad. He doesn't want to be taken out. He wants to be in the game. But to be in the game means you're following what the coach tells you to do. And so you've got one of two options. You can sit there angry because things aren't going your way, and they won't. Or you can kind of feel you can kind of feel the sorrow. You can feel the pain. And you can go and you can apologize. And so I, I told him, that's all you got to do. Come on, tough it up. Put your big boy pants on. Let's go. Come on, we need you back out there. Those are basically your options. Church, I want you to know this morning that there is an enemy who has got an immensely thick playbook against you. And he's calling out plays. Good news is we have a heavenly coach who has given us the instructions on how to counter every one of those attacks. I think one of the problems that we have in church is, number one, perhaps sometimes we're ignorant to the schemes of the devil. You'll see on the cover of your bulletin that that's the theme verse for this series that I'm entitling The Devil's Playbook with the True King's Countermeasures. But the verse comes out of 2 Corinthians 2.11. It says, lest Satan should have no advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Or are we? That's only the first problem. I think the second problem that you and I might have is that sometimes 
when we're not following the design of our heavenly coach, of our leader, of our exalted head, Jesus, when we want to do it our own way, you and I can do one of these, right? We can get a little frustrated. And do you know what that does? It leads to a splintering within the body because we're not operating the way Jesus would operate. We're not loving the way Jesus would love. We're not forgiving the way we have been forgiven. Or we can feel the sorrow of our sin. We can recognize the chastisement of a God who disciplines us because he loves us. And in that sorrow, we can repent and turn and find that the strategy that he's given us will lead to victory. I guarantee you it will because it already has. As we've looked in the book of Hebrews already this morning, Jesus is king. He is alive. The devil has lost, but the devil has changed his strategy. So instead of knocking the king off of his pedestal, which was the original plan, the devil knows that he's lost. And so now victory for the devil means no longer dethroning Jesus, but instead dragging every one of his followers as far down as he can, halting and stopping and at every measure declaring to the risen king, we're still here and your church is still unsuccessful. That is is the strategy of the devil. I've seen it happen here. I've watched as individuals of our own family are caught up not to honor and glorify God, but instead to do the will of the evil one. And so I want to make sure that as we are adding to our understanding of God's word and piecing together Um, A a body of instruction that we can live by, that we can submit ourselves to, that that also includes a great big clear chapter on our uncovering of the devil's schemes. You want to know what play he's running against you? Which, by the way, when you know that, it's awesome. Can I just have two minutes to tell you a little story? One minute. Give me one minute because I'm a little proud of this. Do you know how hard it is to teach one of the... One of the best plays in football to little kids. I, if, if you watch football, you know uh, what's called a screen. Have you ever seen a screen play? It's the best. I remember watching uh, the game with my dad, and every time you'd see a screen, my dad would shout at the TV, screen, screen, because it's the best play. Those linemen, they pull out, and they become blockers for that running back that was blocking. It's awesome. And so we worked on it, we worked on it, we worked on it, and I got the 7th and 8th graders execute it and so in a game i remember calling in the play to the quarterback i had hand signals and for a screen i i I would hold up my hand like this this was a screen and so i'm I'm back there watching with my clipboard and he says hut and sure enough it unfolds and i can hear on the opposite sideline and we got a first down and 40 yards it was awesome i mean i'm beaming with pride it worked those kids did it And then I think the coach saw the hand signal the next time (laughs) because we were running it again. And do you know what they did? They changed their defense. And they took the running back out before he even got the ball. The whole thing fell apart. So we called a bunch of other plays in. And then I thought, you know, maybe we can get away with it again. And we tried it again. And they picked it up again. Church, listen. The the devil is going to pull one over on you once, twice. Eventually, how many times does it need to take before you and I go back and we say, all right, coach, what did what'd you tell us to do now on this? How do we change 
our scheme so that we can take a stand against this strategy that's being leveled against us? So that's my introduction. That's where we're going to be for the next couple of weeks. Every week we're going to unfold another page of the devil's playbook. And here's the point where I really want to take take a moment to emphasize this. Is that as you hear what his strategy is, I will not leave you without recognizing the countermeasure. The counterattack. What do we do in place of this? The problem is, knowing that will do you no good. Living it will. And so as I've been myself studying this and and, and implementing it into my life, I want you to know that it's been like a punch in the nose. Do you ever get popped in the nose? Anybody ever know what it feels like? It's not fun. It's not fun. And you know why? Because I've got a little bit of the devil living in me. Not that I'm possessed by the devil, but that he has been subtly allowing lies to take root in my heart that cause me to live in a way opposed to what my heavenly coach is telling me to do. And so it's not enough for me just to know what it is. It's a little bit of a punch in the nose. What I really need to do is I need to change my actions. I need to change my thinking. And so I want to begin by saying that's up to you today too. That's up to you. I can't do that for you. I can, I can show you what's here. If you're going to listen to the Spirit of God, you have to agree to say, you know what? I think I have a little bit of the devil in me too. So that's going to feel like a punch in the nose. If everything that I say here this morning and moving on you think is for somebody else, that is a huge red flag. That you are beyond the point of recognizing your own deception. For we're going to talk today about the number one issue. The number one issue is called pride. That's where we're going to begin. Uh, we're going to just look at two short verses out of the book of Ezekiel. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Book of Ezekiel. Uh, if you take your Bible right in the middle, just you can almost like unfold it right to the middle. You'll probably hit Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 28 uh, contains for us one of two premier accounts in the Old Testament where the writers will speak to a king... All the while recognizing the spiritual agent behind the wickedness of that ruler. So that's what we have going on in Ezekiel. Uh, We already heard the other verse and we'll look at it again from Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28. uh, Before we look at verse 1 and 2, just look with me over in uh, verse 13. Or 11 and 12 and 13. So he starts out, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, time out. Was the king of Tyre there? Because this is being written to the king of Tyre. A king of a country. And so addressing the physical human ruler... We recognize we're actually talking about a spiritual entity that far predates the king of Tyre. He was in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emeralds, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed anointed as a guardian cherub. For I so ordained you. That call, cherub, is a, is a um, title of responsibility. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. All imagery here to draw the reader's attention to understanding. We're talking about a spirit entity. A spirit creature. 
Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your wickedness, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Who is it that's cast out of heaven to the earth? This is Satan. And so the first thing that I want you to know in just preliminary preparation for our understanding is that the sin of Satan was pride. Pride. Every subsequent sin that has affected the creature world that God made good, all of it comes from this sin. Pride is the primal root of all sin. Now, there's, a, there's another sin that shows up heavily uh, very early on. It's one called idolatry. Idolatry will show up over and over and over. It's exactly what God gives as the refutation within the first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shall have no other one. No other gods. Well, that's idolatry. Well, idolatry is not the primal sin. Because idolatry is just the fruiting mushroom body of what is invisible underneath. It's pride that causes idolatry. It's pride that causes every rebellion that shows up in the lives of God's creatures. And so just as a preliminary, I want you to see this truth. You can find it here in Ezekiel. You can also see it in 1 Timothy 3.6. Here, Paul is giving instructions uh, for elders saying that you shouldn't and are not permitted to appoint a recent convert as an elder. Somebody who has not long been taught through trial and suffering that it's all about God and not about me. Any any type of promotion in leadership, Paul's going to say, you be careful with. Make sure they're not a recent convert. Why? Because he may become conceited. What's another word for conceited? Pride. He may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. The New American Standard says it this way. Fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. What was the devil's sin? What was it? It was pride. And so if you look with me at the beginning of Ezekiel 28, we are going to unpack four different kinds of pride that show up here. In fact, um, I'm not the first to recognize this uh, you, you, can, you can see that this goes all the way back to uh, Pope Gregory the Great, uh, a recognition of, of four different faces to pride and how they show up in our lives. By the way, there's, there's innumerable expressions of pride, but they generally will fall in four categories. And we can see, we can see them um, d- drawn out in this, this short passage this morning. I want you to know that pride is a multidimensional brokenness in the depravity of our lives. We all have it. The danger is when it's going unaddressed, right? The danger is when you're calling out after the play has already taken place. It's too late now. Pride has turned into more sin in your life. You have this. My question is, are you aware of it? Are you addressing it? Are you following in God's design to handle it the way that he has taught us? To handle it. So there, there's not a single one of us here that doesn't have an effect in our life about pride. 
It's multidimensional in the way that it reveals itself. Ezekiel 28, verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. The very first place that you and I are going to see pride showing up is what I'm calling authoritarianism. Now, that's, that's a pretty big word. Your blank is not quite that big. So we're just going to call it authority. Authority. This is exactly why Paul gives the warning commission in 1 Timothy 3. Don't make a recent convert. Don't, don't put somebody in a place of being able to speak authoritatively because that can very easily be a root for pride to show up and sin to wreak havoc in the life of themselves in the church. This manifests itself as control. That's what, that's what the version of pride as authoritarianism, it looks like control. Anybody out there like to be in control? Anybody? Any honest Christians in church today? Uh, here's, here's what it looks like. It's from self-love and self-service. The reason why you want control is because you love yourself. The reason why you want to be in control, you want to be the authority, the root of that pride comes from self-service. I want things to go my way. Who thinks I'm guilty of it? Yeah. Oh, thank Now you raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is a place where I am punched in the nose. Particularly because sometimes I don't like the way things are going. I'd rather them go my way. You can see this here in Ezekiel. He starts out by recognizing in the pride of your heart. Literally, this means the lifting up, having your heart lifted up higher. The idea there is that you've got everybody else down here. I'm going to be up here in authority, in control. Again, this shows up in Isaiah 14, um, verse 13. The verse that you heard Charlene read this morning. Again, the devil saying in his heart, I will do what? Lift it up. I'm, I'm number one. I'm in charge. Here's how it should go. Look with me again in Isaiah. You can see it listed out here. What does he say? You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the... Stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the Mount of Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. What's repeated? I will, I will, I will. Authority, authority, authority. Control, control, control. In the New Testament, you and I have this in James. We need to pay close to James, by the way. It's a good book. We're going to study it in depth sometimes. James 4 says this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we We'll go to this city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Well, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, James says. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. It's gone. Instead, you ought to say, what? If it is the Lord's will, we will do this or do that. I want you to know that the first place that pride is going to show up. And if you don't recognize this, it will go undiagnosed. This needs to be a punch in the nose for us today. The fact that you want to be in control, that you elevate yourself in the pride of your heart, you're acting like the devil. 
And so a couple of questions for you to think through. Where are you seeking to control others? Where are you still just holding on to your will? Just a few diagnostic questions to see if we can diagnose where this shows up in our hearts. Secondly, number two, second kind of pride is achievement. Achievement. Look at what I can do. This, this becomes manifest as conceit. Conceit is the expression of how you think higher of yourself over others. Because of what you know, or because of what you've earned, or because what you are able to do. It shows up as self-congratulations. That's what it is. That's what achievement is. Self-congratulations. The very worst, it's self-righteousness. Where you think that you have a better standing than others because of what you do. And others don't. This needs to be a punch in the nose. This shows up in Ezekiel 28. What's he say next? He says, uh, or this is what God said, you say in the pride of your heart, you say, I'm a God. Look what I can do. In Isaiah 14, this was the, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Better than them. Look what I can do. I want you to uh, think with me of a verse that I think everybody is pretty familiar with. Proverbs 16, 18. Could you finish it? Pride goes before. Yeah. Now, that's what we think it says. Do you know that's not what it says? Yeah. Look, Look at this. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Now, yeah, you got the gist of it, right? I'm not trying to trick you here. But what I want you to know is that there's a little more in that little verse. It's not just that pride has consequences and you see somebody acting all big on their own achievement. Yeah, set your watch. It's only a matter of time before destruction is going to show up because what's the root issue? It's this spirit that seeks their own attention because of their achievements. Look at what I am able to do. When's the last time you used the word haughty? Right? We, don't, we don't use that word too often. What does haughty mean? It means to think of yourself as superior, better than, swaggering, obnoxious, boastful. That's a haughty spirit. Anyone guilty of that? So here's my question for you. How often are you seeking to draw attention to your own accomplishments, your own awards, Whatever badge of honor has been pinned to you, how often is that the thing that you are pronouncing? You know what may be happening? Pride may be going undiagnosed in your heart because it's showing up as achievement. Number three, third type of pride that's coming out of this. Not only does he have pride in his heart to say, I'm a God, watch this one. Uh, There's arrogance. There's arrogance because he says, I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, the, the metaphor for seas here is a representation of all the nations. Look at all the nations. I sit on a throne in the heart of all of them. Just rank arrogance. Um, this gets manifest as overconfidence. So self-confidence, including self-security. I'm fine. I don't need nobody's help. I got this. You should ask me for help. I don't know if you guys recognize how very closely this falls into Americanism. What's the best nation on earth? Let's go. We're not one. Right? Is this not what is just drilled in on us? The heart of the seas, every nation on earth, 
Who sits on the throne? We do. We do. You know what that very quickly turns into? I do. I do. What an assault to the glory of God. What a spitting in the face to the one who is enthroned on high. Sometime I want to, if I could give you homework, read Psalm 2 sometime. And you'll see the response that you and I should have when we recognize the one who is exalted on high. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and in his wrath destroy you. So yeah, arrogance is self-confidence. Again in Isaiah, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred domain. I want to tell you what God thinks of this. A bunch of Proverbs that I'm sure you've heard. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise will listen to advice. In Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah says, Hear and pay attention. Do not be... Here's our word. Here's our word. It's funny. Jeremiah's got to begin. It's speaking for God by saying, Hey, you should, you should really listen now. Because do you know what the arrogant don't do? Whatever, man. I'm good. I'm all set. I've been to school. I've been doing this so long. Can't tell me anything. Hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant. For the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness. Before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. You hope for light. But he will turn it to utter darkness and change it to deep gloom. If you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your Pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Yeah, the arrogant need to make sure that they listen. Again, Proverbs 3.34. This becomes the primary verse the New Testament writers will hang their hope on. Because there is hope. We haven't gotten there yet, but there is. Still covering the ugly four faces of pride. The scriptures say he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor, the New Testament records it says, gives grace to the humble and the oppressed. So yeah, our, our, um, our third one here, arrogance, you can see it. You can see it in Isaiah 14, you can see it in Ezekiel 28. Why is, you, why is the um, evil one, Satan, influencing the king of Tyre? Why is he being called to task? Because not only does he have pride in his heart, not only does he think he's a god and above everybody else, but he thinks he puts his throne on the highest of heights with arrogance that no one can touch. And so here's my question to you. A little punch in the nose. How well do you receive criticism or instruction or correction or reproof or rebuke? Because if you listen, as that comes from God, perhaps you have a handle on pride. But if you are so quick to defend yourself, by the way, who do you think is guilty of that? I guarantee you I'm worse than all of you. I'm so quick to try to defend myself. You don't think I've thought through this? You don't, you don't think I've been to school? You don't think I know? Wow, arrogance in my heart. So, yeah, may, maybe here, let's give some reflection as to where we stand on this. Fourthly and lastly, here for our text, it's attention. Attention. How does pride show up? Here's how pride shows up. Look at me. I want people to look at me. I want them to say my name. I want them to remember what I have done. Uh, 
I think I have the verse up here. We'll get to it later in 28. Uh, this is manifest, though, as getting credit. Do you need credit? Uh, let me ask rhetorically. Are you serving God? Every hand needs to go, right? But rhetorically, I expect you to be serving God. Do you need credit for that? Do, do you sometimes want it? Do you sometimes seek it? Are you sometimes fishing for it? Anybody? No? No sinners in church? Because that seeking of attention comes from the primal root of pride. It, it, it shows up as self-esteem and self-pity, which might surprise you. Sometimes people might think that the answer to self-esteem, having too much esteem, is you just need to have less esteem. And so we become self-deprecating. We, we publicly will denounce those things that everybody knows we're good at. Or that we have in the way in which God is using us, somehow trying to claim self-pity. Um, I want to I uh, uh, submit to you this morning, that's still pride. It's still pride. Uh, this from John Piper, he says, Self-pity does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It's the response of unapplauded pride. That's where self-pity comes from. And so, yeah, if you want attention, these are the two ways to get it. By the way, have you ever heard this term in our culture today, victimization? Ever, ever hear that? Do we live in a culture of victimization? Whoever can claim to be the victim the fastest. You know what that is? That's pride. That's the, that's the una, unapplauded pride in our hearts. That's all that's coming from. Because the answer to self, uh, high self-esteem is not low self-esteem. It's no self-esteem. Here, here's what it's like. It's like you have a cup, and for all the good that you think that you can do, you want it filled up. That's what you want. Whether you're going to admit it in church, I'm telling you, that's how you, that's how you roll. I know. That's how you roll. So we're, we're filling you up, right, all the way to the top. Now, if you're clever about this, what you're going to do is you're going to want to pour some of that out, right? So self-esteem means your cup is so full you have no room for God. It's filled with you. Or you might think, well, I actually should make a little room for God, and so you do this self-deprecating uh, work to empty some of it. Both of those are the wrong answer. You need to get rid of the cup that has your name on it. That's what you need to do. And you need to start pouring into the cup that has Jesus' name on it. Because all glory, all praise, all worth, all power, all attention and fame. It's his. It's not yours. And so pride is going to steal from that. So this from Ezekiel, again, 28. This is the last part. He says, you're not a God, though you think you're as wise as a God. That's what he thinks. That's what's going on between the ears. Look at me, everybody. I'm as wise as a God. Or in Isaiah 14, it's the last two I wills. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. Can you imagine that? Tops of the clouds. Jesus, in his ascension, rose into the clouds. Devil saying what? I'm going to go higher than you. I will make myself like the Most High. Why did this happen for Ezekiel? Let me give a warning to any of you good-looking folks today. Ezekiel 28, verse 17. In your heart, you became proud on account of what? On account of your beauty. And because of that, you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Thankfully, the text tells us that Jesus didn't have anything that was overtly distinguishing that men would think highly by looking at him. Jesus becomes our model Here's a little warning. Be careful taking how much time in front of the mirror that you might. Be careful with that. That was the devil's problem. 
He loved what he looked like. He loved it. So my question to you is, where do you feel unacknowledged or unrecognized? Where is that area where you wish you had a little bit more of that going on? Because that is sourced in pride. Where are you currently seeking recognition? As we work to some conclusions to wrap this up this morning, I want us to do something we're going to try to do every week. I want us to ask the question, if we are addressing the devil's playbook, like what's the scheme that the devil is playing against us? I wonder if we're able to identify those schemes from the beginning. You guys know the story of the beginning of your Bibles, right? God made everything what? God made everything what? Good. He made everything good. At the end of it, it's very good. And then there's a serpent that shows up. I want you to watch what the serpent does. And I want you to watch closely to see if pride, as we've studied it, shows up here. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord, the God, Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Hmm. Hmm. Where'd she get that idea from? What is it about fruit that advertise it's good for gaining wisdom? They don't put that on the packaging. Where did she learn that from? Because what did he say to her? You will be like God. Pride. From the very beginning. Pride. And so here's a few things I want you to know. Pride leaves you blind. That's what it does. Number one, it leaves you blind to identify sin. If you have pride growing in your heart, if it's there... You know what pride does? It slowly creeps in from the periphery and it makes it so that you don't even see the way that sin is affecting you and therefore affecting those around you. It blinds you to this. The best example I know of, and I I really weeded out a bunch of verses, just so you know, I'm trying to limit myself this morning. But this from 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to the church, it's actually reported that sexual immorality exists among you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if there was sexual immorality? Are we, are we living in the same country? Are, are we? It exists among you. A kind of immorality that's not permitted even among the Gentiles. So that someone is cohabiting with his father's wife. And what are they? Look at the church. The church is proud of it. Shouldn't you have been deeply sorrowful instead of re- and, and remove the one who did this from among you? Did they see it? Did they even know it? They were blind to the sin that was right there. It was there the whole time. But this is exactly what pride does. Pride blinds you so that you don't see your sin, which means for you and I, before we address the subsequent sins of our failing to honor Jesus, we probably better look at the primal root. We probably better begin at the question of, do I have pride in my life? Do I have pride that's like worked its way in so craftily, so subtly? Do you remember that's what the serpent was called? Of all the animals, the serpent was what? The most He snuck in there. didn't even know it. That's what pride, that's what's done to you. It's shown up in a way that you've become comfortable with. And so now when sin shows up, you don't, you don't even see it. 
you don't even see. So it not only blinds you to identify sin, it blinds you to your need for Christ. Nowhere else is this greater than in the world. Let me ask a question. Does our world have pride? Oh my goodness. We named a whole month after the most obvious of sins and call it pride. Does our world, are they confused on this? Oh my goodness. We're lost. We're desperately lost because this is what we're doing. I don't need any help. I don't need anybody. I'm fine. I've got this on my own. I don't, I don't need to exalt anybody else. Every single of those four faces shows up here. This from 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the gods of this age, or the God of this age, who's that? God of this age. It's not Jesus. So the prince of the power of the air, this evil one who was cast out of heaven to earth. What has he done? He has blinded the minds of those who don't believe so that they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is in the image of God. The other day we were outside at night. We had a little campfire going and Sadie always loves to have her flashlight. She always loved to have her flashlight. You'd be amazed how much a little kid could play with a flashlight in the dark until she lost it. Now she can't see. If you don't have the light, I guarantee you, you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to cause harm. You're going to cause pain. That is what is happening around the world. This from C.S. Lewis. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. You're blind to it. So pride leaves you blinded to identify sin. It leaves you blinded to your need for Christ. And it leaves you blinded to your unity with others. Specifically, I mean here, the church family. How many churches are filled with infighting and the kind of infighting that has gone permitted because we don't frown them. We just don't frown them. Oh, they're fine. They sit over there. Yeah, that's a kind of infighting as well. I guarantee you you're going to tick off each other. Guarantee you. No, no amens on that one? Right? Come on. You, you, me, all of us, we're going to say something at some point that we meant one way or having a bad day. Whatever it is, I promise you, you're going to hurt each other on accident or maybe even on purpose. If it's on purpose, Lord rebuke you. If it's on accident, don't sit there like this. This type of, this type of division that, that festers in the body. And it leads to a church that's ineffective because you need to remember that's his, not his, his, that's his strategy. He knows he's lost. He's lost. So what's he going to do? He's going to slow you down as much as possible. He's going to make it so that you are ineffective in this world. And he's going to do that by causing these little bitty frustrations to go unaddressed with one another. You know what you need to do? You need to pick up the phone. You know what you need to do? You need to go sit next to that person. You know what you need to do? You need to say, you know what? I think I was wrong. I think I was wrong. Would you forgive me? Just forgive me. And you who are being approached need to know that you would be forgiven. This from Galatians 5. Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. Let us not become, what's that word mean? Conceited means what? Proud. Provoking one another. Being jealous of one another. Unity. Do you see it? Unity. Romans 12, Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, 
Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Anyone guilty? But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many many members, these members don't have all the same function, so in Christ, though many, we form one body as each member belongs to all the others. I've got to give you one more. Philippians 2. Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of pride, selfish ambition, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to the interests, your own interests, but to the interests of others. Do you see it? Do you see what pride does? It blinds us. You won't see your sin. You won't need Jesus. And you won't make an effort to be effective as the body. So, that's a lot to take in. Thank you for paying attention this morning, but now comes the tough part. Got seatbelts on? Everybody ready? Here's the tough part, because you're either going to do this or you're, you're not. I, w- I, was, I decided to look up, what, is the, what does the internet say about how to um, fix pride? Or what, do, what is the world trying to even think of this? Here, here's what it, it said. Um, it says... Take more risks. What? Well, if you want to deal with pride, take more risks. Embrace criticism. That's not too bad. Um, ask questions. If you want to handle pride, ask questions. There, there's some measure of humility that's involved in that. Practice mindfulness. So what's the answer? If this is the attack that the devil has queued up in his playbook, tell me, coach, what's the defense? Here we go. You may not be ready for this. Here's number one. It's called godly sorrow. If you want to handle pride in your life, you will not root it out by just acknowledging it. Your heart must break over your pride. If you look with me, in fact, leave Ezekiel for just a minute. I'd like you to turn to the book of James because James gives us the solution for this. We're, we're going to see it listed out sequentially in James, and then we're going to just find it repeated in other places in the New Testament. James chapter 4. A very uh, strange verse that you might not have given a lot of thought to. James chapter 4. You heard it already from Charlene today, so we're going to give it a little bit more instruction this morning. James 4.9 says this. Grieve, mourn, and wail. There we go. It's a fun, fun, fun day at church, huh? Gr- grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's why James is saying that. You will be blinded by your pride so long as everything's hunky-dory. So long as it's all hugs and happiness. You will be blinded to it unless you recognize the destructiveness of pride. Because if you do, you need to grieve. You need to mourn over it. And you need to cry out to God. The solution for the root of pride in your life is godly sorrow. This from 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Uh, I, I would take another 40 minutes to just talk about that. Actually, every one of these needs more time, but just for this morning. Worldly sorrow is, I guess I got caught. Godly sorrow is, it put him on the cross. That's godly sorrow. 
Godly sorrow recognizes the cost of your sin. And it's evidenced in your life with emotion. That's what sorrow is. Do you know what it is to be sorry? I remember I went to the football player on the bench. And what was he doing? So frustrated. What did he need to do to get back in the game? He needed his heart to break. He needed to go to the coach and say, I'm sorry. You called the play. I didn't want to listen to you. I'm sorry. Godly sorrow brings repentance. And so if, if repentance doesn't show up, which let me just let you know this. Repentance is not a, oops, a day. Sorry. Repentance is a change in your life. I'm going to make changes now. I'm actually going to do things differently. If you don't have that, then you don't have godly sorrow. Um, a verse we already looked at, but remember the one on sexual immorality? Right? He says, you're proud of this? Look at what Paul says you should have been. Shouldn't you have been? There it is. There it is again. Deeply sorrowful. I I promise you the answer to pride is not mindfulness. It's not taking more risks. It's not asking questions. Do you know what the answer to pride is? It's godly sorrow. And some of us need to weep over our sin. Um, Number two. What do we do, coach? What do we do? You hold to Christ alone. That's what you do. If you, want to, if you want to defeat pride, you hold to Christ. Look with me back in James 4. James 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves then to God. That's what it means to draw near to Jesus. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Hold to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Draw near to God through Jesus. He, James says this, wash your hands, you sinners. So that means recognizing that I have sinned. We already covered that in confession from 1 John 1, 9 today. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be double-minded. Singularly, hold only to Jesus. If you do this right, you will be one who has already experienced godly sorrow. I have good news for you today. Jesus gives the invitation to those who are sorrowful. I know you guys are full already. I really want to keep preaching. I really, I I know you're full. (sighs) Thank you. (laughs) Listen, listen real quick. We're wrapping up, I promise. Every time they quote the Proverbs, he opposes the what? Proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus is designed for those who feel the heaviness of that sorrow. Look, Look at this verse. This from Matthew 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you don't have any weariness or burden over your pride, you will not go to Jesus. You will not receive rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So hold on to Christ. And one last one. What do we do, coach? Humility. Again, James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I want to just make one point to recognize that it's not, even though I wrote down, I have you write down, humility This is not humility in general. This is a specific kind of humility. Humble yourselves where? Do you see the difference? We're not just talking 
humility in general. Oh, they're so humble. You'd be so proud of how humble I am. (laughs) I'm not humble in, in general. We're talking about humility before the Lord. It's the exact same thing that Peter says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Look at the half of the promise. That he may lift you up. Cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. If you don't do this, God might do it for you if you belong to him. Paul was given a lot. He was given a lot of important revelation. And he says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming proud or conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. So I don't know if you think this is good news. I kind of do. But um, humility will either be something that you do yourself or God will do it to you. If you belong to him, you have opportunity to humble yourself before God or he will make it happen. Either way, humility is the only way that we please God. So, folks, there it is. That's your counterattack. Not my words. This is what the coach says. This is is from our Lord. So if you're going to go in out there on that field, you're going to leave here today and not be succumbed to the attacks of the evil one, our enemy. Let's start with the primal root of pride. Amen. Let's pray together.